If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, welcome to this hour. Uh, Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon, 403-974-8255. Uh, so yesterday's update from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health included an appearance from Alberta's health minister uh, who announced uh, a $10 million investment in serological testing and four different targeted programs that the Alberta government's going to embark upon. Now, the federal government has also emphasized the importance of serological testing. Uh, back in April, they announced a COVID-19 immunity task force, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, also supporting an external secretariat uh, for the task force, which is going to be led uh, by our next guest, who's uh, going to give us some insight out on the, the value of serological testing and, and some explanation as to what it is. But I know it's something I think a lot of people have been wondering about, asking about. So I want to try to get uh, some answers here. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, uh, Dr. Tim Grant Evans, inaugural director and associate dean of the School of Population and Global Health at the Faculty of Medicine, McGill University. Dr. Evans, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Very well. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, just kind of an overview of what, what serological testing is, just so people understand the difference between the kinds of uh, swab testing we're doing to test for the presence of the virus and this serological, this, this blood test that kind of tells us a story, I guess, about previous or past infections. Exactly. You, you've said it very well. And uh, basically, the serological test, which is just a, a, a test of your, your blood, uh, uh, it looks for... Uh, circulating antibodies, uh, which are uh, evidence of uh, a past exposure to infection. We know the antibodies take uh, somewhere around two weeks to be generated by your body uh, once you've been infected, uh, and they hang around for a while. Uh, and so if you test an individual's blood uh, for uh, these uh, circulating antibodies, you often get an indication uh, that they were infected. It's interesting because those antibodies are, are the body's defense against these virus, uh, this virus. And as we look for vaccines and other treatments, I guess it's important to understand how the body reacts to this virus, what kind of immunity those, those antibodies provide, how strong that is, how lasting it is. But we're still trying to understand that, aren't we? We are. And, uh, but let me just uh, make one prior point to that, which is, uh, when you have these uh, circulating antibodies and, and some evidence of infection, it's often uh, showing that uh, uh, many, many more people have been infected uh, than have tested positive with the swabs. Right. And, and so uh, the value of these tests is not only to give an indication of immunity, but it's also an indication of the number of people who have been exposed to the virus and have generated uh, some antibodies. Uh, and so I think uh, this is important because what we're seeing in many countries uh, is that it's as many as 10 or 20 or 30 
times the number of people uh, that have actually been tested positive using the uh, swabs. So that's that's the first. But the second point that you're making about our understanding, we know that these uh, antibodies are being generated, uh, but we don't know how long they last, and we don't know whether they are protective uh, or at what level they are protective. And so these are studies that uh, are um, now going to be um, uh, pursued over time uh, because it will take time to understand how long they last and whether they prevent people from uh, getting reinfected. Uh, and so those questions are, are terribly important at this point in time to help us understand uh, uh, what these antibodies actually mean. Now, they're, 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 talk about the challenges, though, in, in, in reliable serological testing, I can, because my understanding is that it's, it's the kind of testing that can give you some reliable data if you're doing it at a kind of a societal level. But for an individual who wants to know, you know, I felt sick back in February, I'd like to know if, if I had COVID-19. I, I mean, are, are, we, are we at that point yet where we can have that sort of individualized testing? Well, um, there are two two issues there that I think are important to distinguish. First is the accuracy of the test. Um, and mm-hmm. what we're finding now with the uh, tests that Health Canada has approved recently, I think there are now four that they've approved, which are tests that require a blood draw, a draw from your, uh, uh, taking blood from your vein. And uh, those tests are are, are very accurate. Uh, so the likelihood that you're going to get uh, a test being positive when you're not, meaning showing, suggesting that you've been infected when you were not, is extremely low. And so uh, for those tests that rely on a blood draw, uh, I think the accuracy is, a, is excellent and gives you a very good indication of whether or not you've been infected. The second question you're asking, though, is whether or not that information should be used or how that information should be used with respect to an individual's, um, you know, recommending, uh, uh, you know, uh, whether that individual should return to work or whether that individual can be um, free from any worry that they might get reinfected. And, and there, um, the reality is we don't know yet precisely for the reasons that we talked about earlier. We don't understand enough about whether those antibodies protect or how long they last. And so um, we don't know enough to say to an individual, oh, because you've been infected, uh, you have no risk of reinfection. We don't know that. Mm -hmm. In terms of what we can learn from this information, I know that in in some hard-hit areas in in New York and in Spain, for example, there was interest in knowing, I mean, are, are, you know, were these countries or these areas anywhere close to herd immunity? And it turns out, no, they're, they're in fact nowhere near herd immunity. So there was some, some value in, in, in understanding that. What, what, what can a country like Canada or a jurisdiction like Alberta learn from, from doing serological testing? Well, it can learn a number of things. Um, uh, first is... Um, uh, if you see patterns of uh, of uh, infection arising, which show, for example, some uh, uh, workers or types of workers are much more likely to have infection than others, uh, then that gives you insights on environments where 
there may be a uh, need to uh, make greater efforts to protect workers. Um, and, and let me give you a very specific example. Uh, a study in the UK showed that uh, uh, healthcare workers that deal with uh, patients with COVID um, had uh, uh, infection rates that were about half the infection rates of healthcare workers that were not dealing with patients with COVID. And what that suggested is that the protection measures for healthcare workers not dealing directly with patients with COVID needed to be improved significantly. Uh, and so this, this sort of information that you get um, by understanding the pattern of infection is extremely important in terms of um, uh, adjusting workplaces to make them safer. Mm-hmm. The second is is uh, is understanding what the risk looks like as far as a second wave of infection. And so if you see that in large areas of Alberta uh, that the prevalence of antibodies is very, very low, uh, then that's extremely important in terms of making sure that all precautions are being taken with respect to a second wave uh, because uh, you can't make any assumptions uh, that you have some protection based on uh, significant levels of antibodies. So that's another reason why um, that's extremely, uh, these studies are extremely important to do now. Yeah. And are these initiatives necessarily at odds in terms of what the federal government is doing, what, what individual provinces might be doing? Does there need to be some collaboration, some cooperation or coordination? Yeah, oh, there is. And, and so uh, I think uh, we've had a fantastic work, working relationship with the government, uh, government of Alberta. Uh, we have two, three members uh, of our task force who come from the province. Um, uh, we are in touch with them on a regular basis, um, uh, very much aware of these studies. And, and in fact, we may participate in some of them um, uh, uh, as well as, as those studies joining in with other uh, provincial uh, efforts uh, to be part of a larger network of studies. So uh, these are great opportunities, uh, and the collaboration we've had with, uh, uh, with the province of Alberta has been exceptional. Well, that's excellent. We'll leave it there. Uh, some great insight, Dr. Evans. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Awesome. really appreciate it. All this. the best. Take care. As well. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Timothy Evans, Associate Dean and Director of McGill University School of Population and Global Health in the Faculty of Medicine. And uh, as mentioned, uh, we'll also uh, lead this uh, secretariat that the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada has set up uh, on the uh, question of, of immunity and serological testing. So, the federal government has emphasized that Alberta's moving forward on some of this. So how it's going to work in Alberta. Uh, so this is going to be a $10 million investment uh, for different studies. There are going to be two pediatric studies, one in Calgary, one in Edmonton, that will involve 1,000 children in each study. So a total of 2,000 children uh, to study them every six months until 2022. There's then going to be a random anonymous testing of about 55,000 blood samples from across the province that have been collected for other purposes. So to try to get a real random snapshot. And then in addition to that, there's gonna be 10,000 select Albertans over the age of 45 who will be tested regularly. Part of the issue too, when you you invite it, uh, when you leave it open to people, 
and I know there was some research done in California, and this was one of the big criticisms, uh, when you sort of leave it open to people uh, to come and volunteer, if you're more likely to get people who believe they were sick at some point, it's not going to be representative. It's going to skew the numbers. It's going to make it seem like maybe you had more cases than you did. So it really has to be random. If you're, you're trying to get an understanding of how many people have had this, what's the prevalence, the serial prevalence? There, there needs to be that random element. So I think that's, that's a smart way to go about it, but to also have these other uh, targeted uh, approaches. A few years ago, the uh, previous uh, Alberta government brought in the uh, Voluntary Blood Donations Act, which is a little misleading because this ultimately deals not with blood donation, but with plasma. Now, plasma obviously is, is, comes from blood, but they're, they're certainly different conversations. Canada is self-sufficient when it comes to red blood cells. Canada is self-sufficient by relying upon voluntary blood donors. That's not the case with plasma. Canada has to import the vast majority of plasma product from the United States, where the compensation of plasma donors is common. And in fact, uh, there are very few countries in the world that are self-sufficient when it comes to plasma, and there may be a bit of a crunch coming. And I think that that should be a bit of a wake-up call to us. There is a, a private member's bill that's about to be tabled uh, by UCP MLA Taniel that would uh, repeal the Voluntary Blood Donations Act. Now, there's been a lot of criticism of that approach. Um, the NDP opposition and others suggest that this is something that we ought to be concerned about. But, I mean, given that Canada does import so much from the United States, I think a lot of those arguments seem a little hypocritical. Uh, but certainly one thing that prompted the uh, NDP government to do what it did uh, was word uh, that the company Canadian Plasma Resources was looking at uh, setting up shop in Alberta. Uh, they do have clinics in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. And so they've very much been at the, the center of this conversation. So I wanted to give uh, the company an opportunity to, to respond to some of these criticisms and talk about what it would mean if indeed they were able to do business in Alberta at some point. Uh, you can read much more, by the way, at giveplasma.ca. But joining us uh, on the line this afternoon is uh, the CEO of Canadian Plasma Resources, Dr. Barzin Bahardist. Dr. Bahardist, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, now, yeah, and, and, and certainly it seemed as though your, your company was being singled out at the time when the previous uh, government brought in the, the previous legislation. Um, so let me give you a chance to just kind of give us an overview of what Canadian Plasma Resources does and, and where you fit into the plasma collection uh, landscape in, in Canada. Canadian Plasma Resources is a pharmaceutical uh, company that is licensed by Health Canada to collect plasma for further manufacturing. So we are uh, licensed to collect uh, only the plasma component of blood and uh, only for the purposes of further manufacturing this into uh, plasma-derived pharmaceutical products. There are four entities in Canada that uh, have such licenses. Two are the uh, national blood organizations, uh, uh, funded by the provinces, Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec, and then there are two private companies, uh, ours, Canadian Plasma Resources and Prometic Plasma Resources. 
and uh, we uh, collect this uh, plasma from Canadian donors and send the plasma for fractionation. The need for fractionated uh, uh, products is increasing at a very high rate, at a rate of around 10% per year. And as you pointed out uh, earlier, uh, over 85% of plasma needed for manufacturing of these therapies is currently imported uh, into the United States, sorry, from the United States Mm -hmm. into Canada. And uh, what we are hoping to do is to collect uh, a significant amount of plasma in this country and reduce our reliance on uh, American donors. Uh, now, on, on the question of, of donors themselves, so they, they, donors receive a, a small amount of, of compensation. Explain now how that works. Uh, donors are compensated uh, to donate plasma, and that's uh, um, in, uh, not a, uh, an issue or problem for Health Canada, the, the national regulator, because in view of Health Canada, this compensation doesn't compromise the safety of the of the product. Uh, the compensation is for donors' time. Uh, plasma donation is similar to blood donation, but it's uh, uh, significantly more time-consuming because you collect the, uh, the blood from the donor, you separate all components and return all cellular components to the donor, and you repeat the, this cycle multiple times, up to five times in one sitting for a donor. Uh, and on top of this, uh, not only per visit, the donor spends uh, a much longer time on the donation bed. Because there is no cell loss, the donor can donate more frequently. The donor can donate as frequently as twice a week, uh, whereas for blood donors, they can only donate once every eight weeks if they're male and once every 12 weeks if they're female. So uh, there is, uh, we're talking about a very completely different uh, uh, time commitment uh, here. And the experience in other jurisdictions and in Canada shows that without uh, compensating the donor for their time and travel expenses, it's uh, not feasible to attract a large enough pool of donors to uh, to have a uh, plasma collection center that is economically feasible. Now, with regard to the plasma that, that your company is currently collecting from Canadians, uh, and as you said, some of that is, it is exported then, what, what needs to, to change? How do we ensure then that this product is, is able to stay in Canada? At the moment, unfortunately, Canada does not have a large-scale fractionation uh, a company or capability. So all plasma that is collected by Canadian Plasma Resources, Canadian Blood Services, Hema Quebec, they all have to be exported to be fractionated elsewhere in uh, Western Europe or in the United States. Uh, hopefully in the future as the industry grows, there will be uh, local uh, manufacturing of the plasma in the country. Uh, and uh, the plasma can stay in, in Canada. But at the moment or currently, what can happen is that uh, the plasma that is collected in Canada and, and further manufactured outside the country, uh, we can uh, potentially have mecha- mechanisms to bring the finished products back into Canada. And that can be done through Canadian Blood Services. Canadian Blood Services 
uh, and Hema Quebec in the province of Quebec, uh, purchase finished products from pharmaceutical companies and uh, import them into the country. Uh, almost uh, over 60% of the budget of Canadian Blood Services is um, used for this purpose. So uh, they're basically mostly a distributor of products, uh, finished products for uh, other pharmaceutical companies at the moment. And uh, what we hope to see is that they would uh, uh, purchase products that are manufactured from uh, Canadian plasma. At the moment, uh, unfortunately, even though we have provided several proposals to Canadian Blood Services to, to move into that direction, uh, both reduce cost and reduce de- dependency on uh, U.S. Uh, donors, they have re- refused to work with uh, uh, Canadian Plasma Resources. Why, why is that, do you think? Uh, I mean, that is a question that should be directed to... Uh, the management of Canadian Blood Services, but my understanding is that Canadian Blood Services uh, proposed uh, or provided a proposal to the provinces that fund that organization uh, a few years back to increase Canadian self-sufficiency levels to 50%, which is a uh, which is a good uh, uh, which is a good move considering that again we are at below. Uh, 15% self-sufficiency levels right now. The uh, problem with the proposal was that they were asking for $855 million from the taxpayers to fund this project without any guarantee of getting to that uh, target. And because the demand is increasing anyway, uh, the uh, target would have not been uh, sustained uh, beyond uh, uh, the uh, beyond 2023 or 24, if I remember correctly, which was the last year of that uh, project, um, the uh, the cost was not comparable to the cost of purchasing plasma or fractionated products from commercial entities, and the provinces didn't agree to fund that project. But uh, my understanding is that Canadian Blood Services does not want to work with. Uh, commercial uh, entities, uh, otherwise they will lose their chance of potentially getting the funding they're uh, requesting uh, to uh, to do this collection themselves. And they view uh, other Canadian uh, businesses as a competitor. Uh, again, the original uh, $855 million proposal was rejected, but they have now gone back to the provinces for a smaller uh, smaller, uh, request and uh, for a much uh, more limited uh, project to set up three centers as opposed to 40. But again, as long as I believe they have the ambition to to collect plasma uh, uh, themselves, they do not want to have any competition and uh, therefore uh, do not work want to work with other Canadian entities. All right, so in the meantime then, if uh, this private member's bill is successful in Alberta and, and the Voluntary Blood Donor Act is repealed, I mean, do, do you haven't currently have any plans then to, to look at, at Alberta, to set up shop in Alberta? Yeah, we have uh, plans and we have communicated that with the government of Alberta. Our plan is to 
set up four plasma collection centers in the province that would create job opportunities for up to 230 uh, highly skilled professionals and uh, collect um, a uh, large volume of plasma. Our target is close to uh, 250,000 liters of plasma in uh, per year when the centers mature. Uh, and we are ready to start this project as soon as the uh, the bill is passed. All right. Well, we'll continue to follow this as well. Much more as mentioned, giveplasma.ca. Uh, Dr. Barhardis, thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right, take care. Uh, That is Dr. Barzin uh, Bahardist. He is uh, CEO of Canadian Plasma Resources, GivePlasma.ca. And it is interesting because you had even the CEO of uh, Canadian Blood Services, Dr. Graham Scher, say recently, quote, I certainly need to be very clear that we don't believe the existence of a paid plasma sector is a safety threat to product or to patients, and I don't think there is data or evidence to support that. So, look, there are legitimate issues, as uh, our guest pointed out, in Canada regarding what's known as plasma fractionation. And do we have sufficient capacity here to do that? And so, unfortunately, plasma that is collected here does have to be processed abroad. All right, so let's come back to this story. And you heard what the Prime Minister said earlier today about this letter and the idea of releasing Meng Wanzhou so that China will release the two Michaels. Uh, the Prime Minister concerned, and I share those concerns, that, that we're potentially putting other Canadians at risk and rewarding China's what's essentially a hostage-taking here. I think we're all concerned about the plight of the two Michaels, but is this the best way to, to address the situation? So to, to get the other side of this, uh, I wanted to, to get one of the signatories uh, of this letter on with us this afternoon. And uh, we do have joining us uh, on the line this afternoon. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Hugh Siegel, who is a Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at the School of Policy Studies, Queen's University, former Chief of Staff to uh, Prime Minister Mulroney, former Chair of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Siegel, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, help us understand this. What, what prompted you to sign this letter and why you believe Canada should release Meng Wanzhou? Well, I signed the letter really for three reasons. First of all, uh, the other uh, uh, members of the 19 who signed, uh, these are folks who've been ambassadors to China. They've been ambassadors to the United States. They've been ambassadors to the EU. They've been ambassadors to Germany and France, to the United Nations. They've been deputy ministers of defense. They've been deputy secretaries of the of the United Nations itself. So there's many hundreds of years of diplomatic experience about how these circumstances normally resolve themselves. So that was important because I think that expertise is of value to the country at this moment. Second reason I signed it, uh, when I heard that the wife of uh, one of the Canadians being held unjustifiably in prison had uh, arranged for uh, an independent legal opinion written by a very distinguished criminal practitioner that made it perfectly clear that under existing Canadian law with respect to extradition, the Minister of Justice had the right to uh, stop a proceeding which he did not believe was in the national interest. That had been filed with the Minister's office uh, five weeks ago, and the Minister had not had the decency or the courtesy to respond. Now, when you treat someone who is the wife of a Canadian being held unjustifiably in prison 
in that fashion. That gets my dander up because I think government has an obligation to be as accountable and helpful as possible in these kinds of difficult circumstances. And the third reason, and this is the one perhaps that is most compelling, is that the extradition process that is now playing out in Vancouver endlessly is not a criminal proceeding. It is a petition uh, to Canada to have someone who is in Canada removed to the United States to face criminal proceedings there. Now, the criminal proceedings relate to sanctions against Iran, which the American Justice Department is alleging Meng Wanzhou and her company uh, tried to violate in a fashion that is against American law. However, pretty consistent with the filing of that extradition request by the Americans, the American president himself, Mr. Trump, indicated he'd be more than delighted to trade Meng Wanzhou uh, to the Chinese in return for a better trade deal. So here are the Americans who make a request to us, putting us in a difficult situation, undercutting the integrity of their own request by virtue of their head of state making it clear that he's prepared to trade anything back and forth so it's not a matter of pure criminal law or uh, the rule of law. And here are we um, paralyzed, frozen in amber as a country, unable to do anything to liberate these two Canadians who are guilty of no offense of any kind. So those are the reasons that really drove me to sign with the other folks with broad diplomatic experience, because I think if you look at the recent history just over the last, I would say, three years, the Americans have gotten hostages out of Iran. Uh, there has been negotiations to get people out of Russia. The French and the Germans have made arrangements to get people who are held hostage in other countries. All of our NATO allies have done this. And while I agree with the principle that you do not want to encourage hostage-taking on any part of any country, nevertheless, we do have a duty as Canadians to do all that we can to get our people home safe and sound, specifically when they're guilty of no crime whatsoever. And I think the government, you know, I think the government is trying to do the right thing by, 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 by somehow hoping the Chinese will change without us giving anything in return. I don't think that's the way the real world works. Uh, I'd love to see a world where this sort of thing doesn't happen. I'm no fan of the Chinese. I'm not a fan of letting Huawei operate in Canada, specifically in terms of 5G. I oppose what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. I oppose what the Chinese are doing both in Hong Kong and Taiwan. But that's separate from our obligation as Canadians to help our fellow Canadians who are in trouble in another country to no fault of their own. Right. And, and I think we're all understandably concerned about the plight of the Michaels, which I guess speaks to a China's willingness to go there uh, to to arbitrarily detain two Canadians uh, in order to to try to put pressure on Canada to escalate in order to get what they want. Uh, and, and just the willingness to do so again in the future. So what about that concern that we're basically rewarding this approach? Uh, China is going to get what it wants and through the tactics that it chose to employ. Does that reward that behavior? Does that put Canadians in danger in the future? So I don't believe that, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's important in terms of perspective, I don't believe that it's realistic for us to believe as Canadians that the Chinese foreign ministry or President Xi gets up every morning and asks his senior advisors or his significant other, I wonder what the Canadians think of what we're doing now. 
I don't think that happens. I think the Chinese are going to continue doing what they do in one way or another, and whether or not we find a way to bring our two Canadians home, it's not going to have any impact on their behavior long-term in either way, in either direction. And so I don't think the issues connect as directly as the Prime Minister does. When the Prime Minister says, and I don't question his sincerity, by the way, when he says, well, you know, if we give in to this, every Canadian traveling around the world will be uh, at risk. Well, that would mean that when the Americans got hostages out of Iran, when the French got hostages out of Africa, all French citizens and all American citizens traveling everywhere were at risk. I think that's overstating the proposition, if I may say so. I think we should deal with this particular problem as best we can, and that's exactly why I signed the letter. But then you also seem to be suggesting that if we release Meng Wanzhou, there's no guarantee uh, of anything with regard to the two Michaels. Well, uh, I know what we can be guaranteed about. If we do nothing, nothing will change. If we do what we're doing and keep on making speeches about the rule of law and keep on making speeches about why we haven't, we shouldn't be encouraging the Chinese to bad behavior, then we can be certain nothing will happen. In fact, something worse may happen because these two Canadians who've been unjustifiably charged with espionage, and by the way, the rate of conviction in Chinese courts is 99%, could face a series of challenges going forward if we do nothing that are far worse than what they've already faced. So um, I don't think that the, uh, the option of doing nothing is a real one unless we want to just say, look, we're going to stick to this narrow principle of, um, you know, the American extradition treaty when the Americans themselves have undercut it by what their own president has said. And, you know, whatever happens to these two Canadians, I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's not my view of what a sovereign government should be doing to help its people in distress. And uh, that's why I don't think um, that doing nothing is an option. But are those the only two options? Is it really only down to releasing Meng Wanzhou and nothing else? Well, no. We could we could wait for, I don't know, another 18 or 20 months until that case gets resolved in the courts of British Columbia. Um, there may be an appeal after that. And then, by the way, the act under which this extradition matter is proceeding still requires the minister to make a decision uh, as to whether or not he's going to ship Mwang Manjou to the United States in the event of um, the court case going against her. And um, we're, not, we're not in a position to know how that might work out. Meantime, uh, the two Canadians will be in uh, jail for another 18 months. And I don't know how we look the other way and say that's of no concern. Well, we certainly shouldn't look the other way. This should be top of mind. But it, just, again, to clarify the point, uh, that unless we release Meng Wanzhou, you're the opinion that we have zero other options here. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? That short of releasing Meng Wanzhou, we, we have no other options here? I mean, is, is, that, your, is that your position? Well, sort of what Canada can do to impact upon China, I don't think we have any other options. They're a greater military power. They're a greater economic power. Um, we are caught between them and the Americans. Uh, if we don't do anything to change the water on the beans, as we say in the Maritimes, then nothing will change. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
All right, that is uh, Hugh Siegel, former senator, former chief of staff to uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy of the School of, Public, uh, School of Policy Studies, Queen's University, one of the 19 signatories to this letter, and so laying out his reasons for why he signed it, why he believes this is the approach to take. Okay, so yesterday the Alberta government tabled Bill uh, 29, which uh, makes changes to the Local Elections Authority Act. And this is going to impact how much you can give to politicians, how much can be spent, how much third parties can spend, and also how information is to be disclosed. Now, the government says this is about making a, a more level playing field in municipal elections. Um, but is that really what this is about? And what are some of the concerns uh, about Bill 29? Joining us all on the line is Alberta uh, NDP, municipal affairs critic and former finance minister and Calgary City Council, Joe Cece. Joe, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Well, let me ask you, I mean, as a former municipal politician, what what do you make of this idea that that there is an unlevel playing field? Yeah, I know that somebody's got their finger on the the till, you know, or not the till, but the the way scale. This is a bad Mm -hmm. bill. I don't like Bill 29. I think it's going to uh, create all sorts of problems in the next municipal uh, elections and in the next school board elections, uh, we have a premier who said that he promised to get dark money out of politics or big money out of politics. Well, he's broken that promise with this bill. So, what stands out to you then? Are, is the biggest issues or your biggest concerns? Well, a person uh, can give up to ten grand to a candidate of their choosing, five thousand during the election period. 5000 after the election to help that person pay off a deficit uh, and to, to relieve any debt that that candidate may have. So that's, first of all, that's ten grand. Uh, we had a $4,000 limit per person in the entire province. You wanted to help a candidate out somewhere, you could do 2000 there and 2000 maybe for a school board person. This is going to say, and I'm, and you know, it, it it does sound a little ridiculous, but a person can fund every uh, every election in the province, municipal and school board, and they can fund a candidate in each one of those because there's no limit on how many five thousand dollar donations they can give. They will be able to uh, if they've got deep, 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 deep pockets. They can fund a person in Edmonton. They can fund a person in Calgary, Lethbridge, uh, Medicine Hat, around the province at at the school board level and the council level. And so you, you might say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. If it says money, why don't we let them do it? Well, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with a person who has vested interest, special vested interest and deep pockets, uh, essentially buying up candidates. So what, what should those limits be then, do you think? We had 4,000, and that's the same as the provincial limit now. Uh, sure as shooting, that's going to change with uh, uh, Kenny and the municipal affairs uh, minister. They're going to, they're, next week, we're getting five bills. One of them, I suspect, will be changing provincial campaign donation laws. Okay, but well, four thousand to five thousand doesn't seem no, that dramatic. No, five thousand mm-hmm. is unlimited. The number of candidates you want to spend, uh, Rob. Sorry, did I not make that clear? I, I, you can spend five thousand here, there, everywhere. We had four thousand tops aggregate. That was it. 
Okay, and and so you're, you're concerned then that that um, you think people are going to take advantage of that? Yeah, for, for yeah, some. I, right, I think there'll okay. be uh, big groups of people who pony up five thousand dollars each and come into candidate uh, ward. Say, I don't know, just pick a ward, eleven, and say we want to fund this guy, and we've got five thousand dollars each, and that that or girl, uh, and that person has a stellar campaign. Uh, and maybe they spend too much and they have a deficit after, and the, um, that same person can come back and round up all their friends and they can each give another $5,000. So we, we'll maybe see kamikaze campaigns as well uh, uh, to the likes of uh, uh, Callaway. Um, we'll see campaigns where um, competitors, you put up a candidate to run against a valid com- competitor uh, so that you your candidate can uh, you know talk trash for the whole campaign against them and and uh, take them out this I think I think this is ripe for corruption um, I think uh, the minister is uh, not being transparent and upfront with Albertans uh, when he says you know for instance, we're not going to we're not going to make uh, it so the candidates have to declare who they're getting money from before the election. We're going to say you can do it after the election. Um, there's no transparency in that. There's no accountability in that. Uh, but the minister says we're going to reduce red tape uh, for uh, Albert or those candidates so that they can focus on getting to the doors. Well, frankly, that's a lot of hooey because you know even. Um, People, people in uh, small, smaller. Oops, I think you're you're running out of power. Rob, you can still hear me. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Anyway, I, in even smaller campaigns, you have a financial person who takes care of your finances, um, and they can. It's no skin off their nose, so that they provide information on a regular, updated way about who's funding their campaigns. Now we're going to see that not be required until after campaigns. So there's no transparency, no accountability. It's not about red tape. It's about hiding who the funders of campaigns are. That's not true democracy. True democracy is when you know who's who's putting money up for candidates. Uh, Now we're just going to be in the dark uh, until after the election. And so why is Alberta being treated different than any other place uh, and when we look around, they have to declare who they're getting money from. So this is yeah. not democracy. Yeah, I mean, I actually agree with you. I, I think I, I'm for transparency. I don't mind higher limits, but there, there should be transparency. The idea that, that transparency comes after the election, that, that doesn't sit right with how me. High, how high is the limit that you're comfortable with? Right now, it could be unlimited. In ter- it, the only condition that uh, that holds this is that the number of candidates out there in the 360 municipal elections, I don't know how many school right. board elections there are, but uh, you know, a person can give money in each of the 360 if they want to. And school boards. Well, are, yeah. you, are you comfortable <laughs> with that? I'm not comfortable with that. Well, I, yeah, okay. It's a fair question. I don't know who would, but I, I suppose maybe someone has an agenda. I mean, obviously, you're not giving maybe. more than that. Well... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But uh, the idea that, yeah, if you want to give somebody in, in your riding, a candidate you like, a donation, uh, that that's right. your or, money. No, in, your, that's... In, your, in your ward or in your, your municipal uh, sure. area. Right. So, yeah. And... so, yeah. So, say, I don't know, pick, 
you know, in the last election, it was the Car Dealers Association were a pack, and they helped out Kenny, right? Um, they could they could fund candidates in all of the major cities where there is car dealerships that their members are. Uh, and how much money? Well, is that but but to be clear, we're, we're talking about individuals here. Sure. Not not corporations. Yeah, no, they they can have a campaign that goes out to all of their members and say, you know, this person uh, is good. And so, so I, I, my point is that this is going to take a lot of focus away from local issues in campaigns. And we're going to be seeing special interest uh, people or organizations start to influence uh, municipal and campaigns and school board campaigns. Maybe, maybe they try and get people elected who for a public school board who don't have an interest in public education. You know, I, where's it going to go, Rob? I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty crazy. Well, it could be. I, I guess we'll see what comes of all of this. Uh, so the debate's going to be interesting on this one. Joe Cece, we'll leave it there. Appreciate it. Make okay. some time for us here this afternoon. You bet. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Uh, that's Joe Cece, NDP Municipal Affairs Critic. It is interesting, i, I got to admit. I mean, $5,000 is a donation limit. doesn't seem unreasonable. But it's it's uh, that's per candidate. So yes, technically you can only give five thousand dollars to candidate A, but you can give five thousand dollars to candidate B, candidate C, candidate D, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know why you would, but maybe you can imagine where you know someone with deep pockets wants to back a whole bunch of candidates. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.